back. And joining me now is one of my favorite folks, and that is Mr. Al Beck. Good morning, Al. Hey, good morning, Karen. Good morning, everyone. What a what a beautiful day again. It's just it is so calm and nice and warm here. I wrote a newspaper column. Heard from a, a friend uh, from from Faribault who said I, you know, I mentioned about the miserable winter or something in there. She said, did, "When did you write this? Like a year ago, or <laughs> were you just?" Uh, and I said, "Well, you know, winter isn't over yet, so it's hard to write about winter." In uh, kind, gentle ways, I like winter, but, you know, I, I always think there's something right around the corner. I don't know why that is, but well, she uh, she has tulips peeking up. Oh, so. no. that's See, yeah, that's the thing we're worried about as gardeners. We were talking about that last night. I'm on the Lily Statewide Lily Society board, and we were all talking about how is this going to impact our flowers and are we going to have them come up? And then, of course, we'll get the cold winter again, and they'll freeze, and then we won't get the blossoms because that's, you know, when the first stuff comes up, that's where all of it is. So that is a concern because uh, the North Star Lily Society is hosting the International Convention here oh in uh, Minneapolis. God. And, of course, they're expecting great things. So <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> Can you come to that even if your name's not Lily? Is it? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, if your <laughs> if your name is Al, you're especially welcome. I would say. I spoke at the. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna. Rem, I'm not gonna remember the name of the group, the actual name, but everybody was named Linda. Oh. <laughs> uh, like like the Linda Society or something, and they could have either their first name, their middle name, or even their last name. I don't know if they had anybody with that as a last name, but there was Lindas from <laughs> from all over the country came to this thing, so it was fun, and they were all, you know, when you think of Linda, you think of just a nice person, and that's what they were. A friend uh, got a hold of my wife this morning and said, she lives in Albert Lee, she said the wind was blowing a bit, and it was chilly, and it, there was some snow coming down, so... Hmm. We uh, we have nothing here in the banana belt. We don't I did either. Hear the, I heard the drumming of a woodpecker, and it's still it's still January. It, you know, it's it's more percussion and melody. Of course, we think of songs of birds, and this the drumming kind of takes the place of a song for a woodpecker. And it's a proclamation of territory, and it will increase in frequency as winter lengthens. And it's sometimes called tattooing when a downy, hairy, red-bellied, and pileated woodpeckers peck on objects to communicate. And they drum rapidly, striking beaks against resonant objects such as hollow trees, logs, stumps, Utility poles, what else? Transformer boxes, oh, metal chimneys, old TV antennas, uh, exhaust vents, rain gutters, downspout, oh, those exterior light covers, and both male and females will drum most frequently in late winter or early spring when they're seeking mates and establishing territories. Drumming is most common in the morning, but woodpeckers may drum any time of day. And to tie up something from last week from Karen Wright said a search found that lady beetles smell like <laughs> the overall smell is a mixture of nut like green bell pepper 
potato and moldy odors. <laughs> At the concentrations present in ladybug emissions, the mixture is really stinky. <laughs> and as one who's had them in my tea and various things, I think that's a description as being very kind. I, I really do. It's uh, and and I'm sorry the little guys have to um, give their life uh, in a cup of tea, but you know I didn't throw them in there. They, they, <laughs> they chose flew in to there. go in there. <laughs> I guess for the warmth. I don't know why else they'd be going in there. Uh, Father Eugene Stenzel. Uh, Father Stenzel has this stone house by Penny Lake. And it's a beautiful place. People go there just to look at this house he built out of uh, out of rock. He begged rock from anybody that had farm rock that would bring it over there so he could build this. And he's hearing Eurasian collared doves. And Eurasian collared doves, they do that, and they sing all year long. Uh, Tim Scott sent me a article from the Wall Street Journal about couples are hiring birds of prey to be ring bearers at their weddings. What? <laughs> uh, yeah, adorable tots in Texas. You know, they've, they've held the monopoly on ring bearing responsibilities forever. But now people are paying up to $1,200 for oh. raptors to play the role and it's really taken flight. So look for that at the next wedding you go to. You know, Tim says we have a pair of barred owls for at least ten years. <laughs> Maybe not the same owls, but they're not ring bearers. So it's, you can look at that. I have seen people use their dog as the ring bearer, but I mean the the um, raptors. I would think that you'd have to. Uh, well, they're obviously must be trained in some way that they could do do that. I mean, do you have the the person that's trained them? come up at the front behind the bride and the groom and they go here birdie birdie and then the bird swoops in and brings the ring and drops it to them or what i i'm sure somebody has found a, a way to monetize this <laughs> the raptor wow i i'm thinking though when i've held a, a lot of raptors through the years but i wear a glove sure so i'm guessing somebody if they're gonna fly in i don't know if the uh if you're standing up there with your best man and a maid of honor, do, do you have this other guy over there with this big glove on? So well, when they fly in, the, the brings the ring, and then you reach over and take the ring. I don't know how, Al, where the ring is. Yeah. They put lace on the gloves, so it fits right in with the rest of oh, it. That's what they must do. And you know, the, the I'm sure the raptor's not going to carry it in <laughs> in its bill and say, here you go. So they're going to have it tied on the leg. Yeah. With the, I I don't know how it, I, I'd like to see it just to say I, I, I could see it. Because then you got a story. You got a story. Yeah. Say, oh, yeah, man, I was at this wedding and this hawk brought in. And everybody <laughs> said, oh, that's something. So. Uh, Roger Davidson sent an article from the Duluth newspaper about the Cheyenne River Buffalo Ranch, which is owned by wildlife biologist Dan O'Brien and his family. And they have certified through Audubon's Conservation Ranching Program. This is in South Dakota. And they asked Dan why he did it, and he said, I want uh, to help the birds, and I want more birds. So that's that's pretty cool. And they have uh, over 100 ranches now that have enrolled in this Audubon Conservation Ranching Program. So it's a lot of plantings and preservation, and uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. 
Uh, Chad Hines saw a Cooper's Hawk in Blue Earth County. I just saw one in my yard. Uh, There must have been 20 blue jays, and it was in a spruce tree. And the 20 blue jays were having a... uh, a group cow. They were just, uh, they were jaying, and it was probably jeering more than jaying. And finally, the the Cooper's hawk flew out of there just to get away from them, because uh, blue jays are pretty big bird. And the Cooper's hawk was bigger, but still there's, you know, there's danger there, because the blue jays don't like them. And then all the jays, there was this long line of a flock of jays, following behind this Cooper's Hawk wherever it went. And then very soon I saw them all come back. They landed in a maple tree, and they talked it over about what an amazing thing they had done by chasing this guy out of there. And it was it was really it was fun to see. And I think everybody enjoyed it. If there was 20 Jays and me and this Cooper's Hawk, out of 22 creatures, 21 really enjoyed it. The Cooper's Hawk was probably not real happy about the whole the whole goings on uh tom steinman asked how do you tell a male from a female hawk or eagle uh boy tom it's really difficult to tell because they dress alike so unless you see the pair together and the primary difference between males and females is size and this is true for most raptors uh, females can be 25 to 33% larger than males. There's really quite a, a difference. I was looking at a picture of a, a bald eagle pair I had taken, and oh my gosh, she just uh, she looms over him, so you can tell who's probably in charge in that family. She was much, much larger than he was, and, and that'll vary a little bit according to location. The bald eagles in the northern part of the there's range are bigger than those in the southern part. Uh, Father Eugene Stenso, who I just talked about of Wells, asked why a bald eagle pair would build a second nest. Uh, there's one that's going on in uh, Saint, in the St. John's community in Albert Lee. There are two nests fairly close to one another. And eagle pairs often build an alternate nest, and it's usually within a mile of the first nest, and it is within the pair's territory. And the pair may take turns nesting between the two from year to year. A pair generally returns to the same nest annually. This applies to a lot of different birds. And this is called nest site fidelity. Fidelity. Hmm. It just means they they like home. They're like a lot of us. We get out of here saying, man, I'm going somewhere so far away from here, and I am never coming back. And then, boom, what happens? We come back. We're like a boomerang. We just say, well, it's pretty good at home, you know, and I miss mom's cherry pie. I'm coming home. An alternate nest serves as insurance in case the primary nest is destroyed early in the nesting season. So what happens, yeah, if the wind takes down the tree, you had all everything in that one nest, well, now you got another place to go. A nest could go unused for several years, often because of the death of one of the pair. So if one of them dies, they might just abandon that nest, and then they will reoccupy it by either the original pair or one member with a new mate. 
a pair may abandon a nest for unknown reasons and build another or may continue adding to and renovating a single nest. Those, are, When they do that, when they renovate a single nest, I think it's called nestorations. I don't know if anybody else agrees with me, but nestorations sounds right. And that includes repair and pair bonding. Uh, so eagles can take advantage. They will take advantage of available resources. So they like large stands of trees. They like a nest in a king tree. Uh, the nesting habitat must provide an abundant food source. So if a nest blows down, the pair usually builds another nest nearby. A nest failure could be caused by food shortage. So if they run out of fish, they're going to go somewhere else. Inclement weather, if the weather just keeps blowing the nest down, they might say, you know, this is a sign. <laughs> uh, human disturbance, I think they're getting more used to us, so that might not be the concern it was at one time, but it's still a concern. Uh, predators, you'd say, well, what on earth would... What would that be? Well, raccoons will hound them. Uh, great horned owls are uh, they're tough neighbors. They want the nest in many cases, or they want the food in the nest. Another bald eagle might come in and say, you know, um, you stole my guy. I want him back, and they have a fight there. And then environmental contaminants. So, But the main reason, Father Eugene, Father Stencil, is they build an alternate nest just so they have insurance. They can't buy insurance from State Farm. Or I don't know who <laughs> Eagle would buy. Some uh, company must use an Eagle as a symbol, but they can't do that, so they build a second nest. Well, but that one uh, Liberty uses the emu, that's kind of sort of close? <laughs> yeah, maybe they would buy from an emu. I don't know if they'd buy from the, the little uh, gecko. They'd probably eat, eat the gecko, <laughs> yeah. so that that wouldn't be good. So, right. But it's uh, it's great to to hear from you. Uh, somebody said uh, my grandmother and her grand are asked said her grandmother. My grandmother said her grandmother called a bird the hang nest. What kind of bird would that be? And I bet a lot of you are, are got the answer. It's a nickname for the Baltimore Oriole, which builds her nest oh. suspended from the branch of a tree and looks like a hanging purse coming down. And if she was from Brazil, the, her grandmother's grandmother, then it could be the hang nest toady tyrant, and it's a bird that's endemic to Brazil. So more than likely, she'd be talking about the Oriole. And it's it's a pretty good name. I don't hear it much and I uh, never have heard it much. I've heard it uh, just a handful of times where anybody's referred to it as a hang nest. So it's kind of a name that's it's gone away. And like a lot of names do, they go away. Even uh, I talked about speaking to that Linda group. It's, it's hard to find a young Linda. And I know... <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> There's 97 of you out there saying, "Well, we have a we have a granddaughter named Linda, so maybe the name will be coming back." But and Al, I doubt that many people are going to be naming their children Karen anymore. So I don't think there's going to be a lot of Karens in the future either. No, it, uh, that poor name kind of got yeah. battered around there for a while. <laughs> it and did. It's, it's it's too bad. And you know, there aren't many uh, Al's either. I no. I teach uh, writing classes and. 
Oh, you know, I came across an Agatha a while back, and uh, there was a Beulah a year or two ago. So a lot of the old names are coming back, but, boy, Al just doesn't seem to be um, (laughs) driving to the top. And and there's so many kids in the classes that share a name. There's names that are very popular, and there'll be a bunch of them in there. And then there's... uh, Alyssa, Alicia, Alicia, and uh, names that I get wrong almost every time I, I call on them in class. And well, because a I lot of them are, are spelled, they're, they're probably, you pronounce them the same way, but they're spelled in weird ways, so then you say them like you think they're spelled like, and then you're wrong? Yeah, and I tell them all I'm used to being wrong, so <laughs> just uh, I apologize before the class starts because I'm going to get your. I said I grew up where everybody was named uh, after one of the saints, uh, Joseph Patrick and Patrick Joseph and Mary Margaret and Margaret Mary and then Linda and Judy and Karen. and <laughs> We had all those uh, pretty simple names back then, so it's it's a little harder for... Or uh, to get my tongue around some of these, or to remember the exact pronunciation. Mm-hmm. I here's the. Uh, it says I'm not Linda. So well, good. Well, not good. <laughs> Linda said I saw birds in an airport terminal. How did they get there? Uh, they fly for Delta. A lot of people don't know that, but a lot of birds fly for Delta. You know, I was. Uh, here not too long ago, I was out at a speaking engagement far from home, and I was doing what I could to prepare myself for my job <clears throat> of uh, keeping the airplane in which I was a passenger from falling out of the sky. <clears throat> a lot of us have that job. When birds in an airport brighten my day, and how did the house sparrows I saw get into Denver International Airport? Well, boy, think about it. There are many, many doors through the terminals and jet bridges and where deliveries are made, trucks are backed in, and when one door closes, another opens, and in come the house barrels. So they uh, they have easy ways getting in there. You think about, uh, I don't know what kind of birds you saw. They're very possibly house sparrows because they're good at this. They're tiny little birds. It doesn't take them. They're used to going into cavities, so they have no problem saying, let's see what's at the end of this thing, especially if they can see light. They're going to follow the light and come in there, and boom, here they are. And they love airport terminals because there is food. Mm. We're... Uh, we're kind of messy sometimes, especially at airports. We're either falling asleep while we're trying to eat or all of a sudden, did they just call our plane? And you just kind of throw everything down and you take off. What about so all, all the us- birds you find in Menards and Home Depot and Lowe's? Those are usually filled with them too, but there's really not any food in there. So do they just come in because they would like to see what they're shopping for or, or what? Yeah. <clears throat> and some of the... Uh, House sparrows will nest in those places, too. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because it's like a big farm building to them. Uh, Gail and I used to go down to Texas pretty regularly, and there's stores down there called H-E-B, and it's named for a guy's name, Harry E. Butt, uh, which is kind of an unfortunate name, but uh, he was a successful guy. 
And I called it H-E-B, have enough bananas, because we were always going in there getting fruit. And the birds would come up and they have that little uh, light that we can't see in front of the doors that detects our presence uh-huh. and then opens the door for us. We just walk up there and boom, it says there it are. The birds somehow had figured out if they fly up there and flutter, the door opens for them. Wow. So here we had these birds going in and out. You'd look up and the door would open and in comes a couple of birds. So they had figured that out. Uh, you know, a bird brain uh, works pretty well. And they were coming in there and just uh, enjoying hanging around with people and uh, eating what what we were not eating, I guess. And uh, I don't it was, uh, I think, uh, one of the TV stations was there. One day we were in there shopping, and they were filming these birds coming into H-E-B. So they, they became famous. They were unable to interview them, but still the birds uh, were enjoying their visits to H-E-B. And maybe H-E-B found a way to use that in their ads, saying, you know, even the birds <laughs> love coming in here. Uh, A listener said, Al, are there any nocturnal hawks or eagles? Uh, The ones we see here are diurnal hunters. And that said, some will hunt at dawn or dusk. But they're not out there in the middle of the night hunting. They just, uh, they're not meant for that. Owls are good at that, but not hawks or eagles. The only... Yeah, there's probably more than this, but the only one I can think that hunts in the night would be, it's called a letter-winged kite, and it's in Australia, and it hunts at night. And again, there's probably other ones, but uh, none of the ones we have here, and the letter-winged kite is the only one I can think of that comes galloping to my mind. It's uh, it's a beautiful day to get outside once again. I hope everybody will get out there and walk, and the Blue Jays will holler at you. And can you tell if it's a male or a Blue Jay hollering at you? Well, can you, you know, you just think, is that a male or a female calling? Well, you check your caller ID. That's what we do first. <laughs> and then Blue Jays, they use a number of calls. Boy, they do so many different calls. It's incredible. And they do that to communicate with one another. They can make a sound of a hawk. They can, uh, oh, it's kind of a dripping sound, a pump handle sound, the J sound. Uh, Males are typically more aggressive sounding, and females are more expressive. So that sounds pretty familiar. It's sort of like humans. Yeah. Uh, Males and females will use the same calls, but there's slight variances. And I've heard the females make sort of a peep call, and they do that during the egg-laying period. So the females, I think, will make uh, uh, several calls probably that the males do not make or don't make very often. But, you know, we're not going to be able to tell the difference for the most part. Uh, who's singing? The males might be louder. I've heard that a lot. They might sing with more intensity more often. But the, I think the female can can hold her own in that area. So it's uh, they're beautiful birds, and they're so intelligent. And as I watched them and listened to them, 
chase that Cooper's hawk. They were using every kind of sound. Say, Al, I'm going to change the subject for a moment because we're sure. almost out of time and we have a couple listeners who texted us with questions. Wonderful. Of course, our friend Jennifer and Lily, she says, Hello, ma'am, please ask the bird guy about mosquitoes. How in the heck do they survive winter? They don't live very long, do they? Where do they go? In what stage of their life cycle are they over the winter? I don't think the males live very long at all, so how do they survive? Or are all the ones that survive winter ladies? Do they continue their life cycle during the winter? How can they if all the water is frozen? Ah, my brain glitches out when I think of all this. Please help. Thank you, Jennifer and Lily. Boy, she's got a lot of questions for you. She does. Thank you, Jennifer and Lily. I, I, um, they are, there's, there's different species of mosquitoes. So some of the adult mosquitoes, become inactive with the onset of cool weather. So they enter, we can call it hibernation. There's different names that should be given to it, but it's easy to understand, hibernation. Some kinds of mosquitoes have winter-hardy eggs. So those would hibernate as embryos in eggs laid by the last generation of females. So they have different ways of surviving up here, and we're always happy to see them, of course, when they come out. Uh, We get crane flies sometimes that look like giant mosquitoes. Uh, The mosquito, this hibernation or dormancy is called diapause, and that enables mosquitoes to survive the winter. And some, again, enter it as adults, the adult females will mate in the fall, and then they look for animal burrows or hollow, hollow logs to survive the cold winter. And again, other ones will lay these winter-hardy eggs that can survive freezing temperatures. So that's really amazing how they can they can survive. You know, we have frogs that freeze solid to survive it, but. At every stage of their life, mosquitoes are highly sensitive to temperature. So adult females alter the time of their egg laying based on warming and cooling temperatures. So if uh, winter hardy eggs and larvae, they don't develop further while in this diapause. But mosquito pupae cannot survive freezing temperatures. So the other stage is a dust adjust their timing to avoid pupating during winter. So it it's incredible how they do it. Uh, you know, and they just do this just to drive us crazy. So we should appreciate them. <laughs> All right. I have a, another text from our friend John, and he uh, starts at Almost Comedy by John. If anyone paid attention in 2023, I hope they save their receipts. It's a new deduction on state income tax. Sorry to say, I only have a few receipts. Reporting live from the corner of nowhere and somewhere, John. Thanks, John. I, yeah, I, boy, I, I save. Do you save your receipts, Karen, for everything? You know, I don't because I feel like everything's on, well, unless it's for tax purposes, but I feel like everything's on a computer somewhere that you can find it. Yeah, I, I always get a receipt when I fill up for gas and I keep it 
long enough to get into the car and then crumble it up and put it <laughs> I in. Do the, too. I don't know why I ask for one every time, but I, I guess it's just habit. They say, "Would you like a receipt?" And I say, "Yes, please." Exactly. And, uh, uh, Sometimes I look at it, but usually I just go, well, I'll put that in there. Yeah. Hey, thanks, everybody, for uh, sitting on the front porch with us. You know, it was warm enough I was wearing a shacket. You all know shackets? Guys like them. They're kind of a cross between a, a shirt and a jacket. And so I'm wearing this shacket, and I'm driving along, and I waved at every driver I met. <laughs> I didn't do it the customary raised forefinger wave mm-hmm. where I just flip that finger up there and leave the other fingers on the steering wheel. I let them have the full forefinger acknowledgement Ooh. with only the thumb maintaining a grip on the steering wheel. And fellow lovers of the open road way back, I pretended I was wearing a badge designating me as the county ambassador of the heralding congenial gesture. It was a really large badge. It's volunteer position unless a grant can be found. My father thought waving demonstrated common decency, and I think it also prevents finger cramp- or hand cramping <laughs> while you're driving down the road. So. I remember... Thanks for listening to me. Remember Heartless while we're driving past. Do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. Thank you, Karen, so very much. I appreciate uh, Tuesdays with Karen. I appreciate Tuesdays with Al. Hey, thank you very much. We will chat next week, okay? All righty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.